Welcome to the Saturday morning meditation meetup. I think there might be some new people on here, so I'll just say um, I record this, and if you don't want what you ask to be recorded, feel free to just ask me to turn off the recording and I will turn it off. Um, and if at all possible, remind me to turn it back on again because I often forget. Uh, so, oh, and uh, if you want to ask a question, click on the participants button at the bottom and you'll see there's an option to raise your hand. Um, let's see. Yes, okay. So uh, does anybody want to raise their hand? This could be a very short meeting. Nate. Uh, I'll go. Yeah, so I mean, this is not really a practice question, but do you, any, do you know any good um, places for like solar retreats on like um, the East Coast, maybe? Mm. That doesn't like break the bank when you go there? Yeah. Uh, I mean, the, the short answer is no. Um, uh, I think there's a place in, in uh, actually near where I live uh, that has rooms for like a little under 200 a night, but that doesn't really meet your breaking the bank criteria. Um, Possibly Shenzhen Young Center up in northern Vermont might have facilities that are less unreasonable. I don't know. I've, I've not looked into it. I, I'm actually like kind of thinking I want to do some, something like that too. And, and so if you find the answer to that question, let me know. But, um, but yeah, does anybody else? Uh, I don't know who's on the East Coast here. I know Gilbert probably doesn't have an idea for you, but uh, no. I'm sure there must be some place, but... <laughs> well, yeah, Airbnb. Yeah, I mean, right now my 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 plan is to either just break the bank or else uh, do the retreat in the house. And, you know, people do that. Like, like one thing you can do is is if you're afraid that you're going to get distracted, um, what people sometimes do is they'll put sheets over their um, over their bookshelves and you know anything that's like you know, going to function as a distraction, they'll just cover it up. And then it sort of creates a different space and there's less of a concern about, you know, doing the wrong thing, but, but it's not ideal. Yeah. I'll, I'll see if I can find any places. Yeah. Huh. Find a meditation center app. So Georgina mentioned, now where is National Area of Beauty? Yeah, okay, I was, I was wondering, that didn't sound like an American term. <laughs> we tend to be shy about calling things beautiful and so we just call them parks. All right, well, sorry, I didn't give you a better answer than that, um, but I think it's a, it's a really good question. And I mean, you know, I, Unfortunately, when we built our house, we didn't, I was actually planning on doing a retreat in the house. And so I was going to add, we were going to have an extra like little retreat studio attached to the house. But by the time we got to the point where that was a thing, we were just like, we're done working on building the house. And so we didn't actually do that, but 
So that's a little frustrating. You may find that it's actually cheaper to find some somebody in like a an area like Tucson where where casitas are are more common and and might be willing to let you use their house. But so anybody else want to talk? Ken, you haven't said anything here. You've been you've been coming regularly, but not raising your hand. How are you doing? Hey. Um, yeah, no, I guess I don't have too many questions. I'm just kind of enjoying practice recently. I think the last time I was on, um, I talked about the fact that I had identified this fear of letting go of thoughts while I was trying to watch the breath. And uh, I was on a retreat a month, month and a half ago, um, for like four days. And some stuff seemed to have kind of broken free at that point. And since then, um, just watching the breath is just super, super low effort, super pleasant. Um, and finally, it's kind of a new feeling, but I'm able not to be afraid of letting the thoughts disappear and only watch the sensations. And that's kind of pleasant and relaxing. It's kind of new territory. Um, I mean, the thoughts still come. They, you know, there's still all this stuff that pops up, but it gets less and less. And so I'm just, just kind of enjoying it. Cool. Yeah. I, again, I have no idea where any of this is going to lead me, but it seems to be, seems to be kind of pleasant and empirically my life is better now than it was a couple of years ago. Mm -hmm. It's all good. Yay. Good to hear that. Thanks for sharing. Lewis. Uh, I wanted to ask you what your opinion is about uh, switching positions during meditation. When mm. I meditate, uh, like after half an hour, normally discomfort comes up and it's very distracting and then I find it helpful to lie down mm -hmm. or strong dullness comes up and I stand up. But I'm not sure if that's a good idea or if you should just like stick to one position and power through. Well, I actually, I... I suggest thinking about it a little bit differently. Um, so why is strong dullness coming up? And is there a practice that you could do that would address that problem? Um, I would suggest that, that identifying what that practice is and doing that would probably be more effective than standing up. Standing up is like kind of a, a heavy hammer solution. Like it'll work. It's not a bad thing to do it, but uh, but ultimately, you want to get to the point where that's not happening in your sets. And in order to do that, you're going to have to come up with a practice of um, of noticing that um, that you that that strong dullness is going to. Basically, you need to start noticing when progressive subtle dullness happens, and start to take action before you get to the point where the only thing you can do to correct your dullness is stand up. Right. So. Um, so uh, you might try checking in, like, 
you know, particularly like you, it sounds like you know that, that it's fairly commonplace for strong dullness to start a half an hour into the sit. And so if you're able to like anticipate that that's coming, then start checking in and just like take a, take a snapshot or, or do a little bit of a, an exploration of um, what's appearing in, in peripheral awareness and see if you can find fine details in it. Um, you may get to the point where you're, where, where you'll notice that, that, um, that there wasn't detail, but as you look for it, the detail immediately pops in. And then when you go back to the breath, you'll find that there's less dullness. And so, you know, when you, when you have dullness, that's not really deep, then you can just try to do that. You can also do, you know, Chula Dasa talks about just, you know, renewing your intention to follow the breath. I, I find it, uh, exploring peripheral awareness can be really helpful. Um, but, you know, so, so, so think about like practices you could do to address the, the, uh, the, the dullness rather than just standing up. Um, and then, uh, the other thing you were talking about is discomfort. Um, so that's actually very typical, uh, that you would experience discomfort a half an hour in. And uh, if that's happening, then two things I would investigate are, is your seating posture really a good seating posture? Play around with that. See if raising the cushion a bit or lowering the cushion a bit helps. See if like, you know, experiment with like, you'll find that there's actually a fair amount of tilting back and forth that you can do and still have your seat be relatively stable. But there's probably a sweet spot in there where the amount of effort that's required to stay straight up is less. Um, and so see if you can find that spot. And it's, it may be counterintuitive, like it may be farther back than you thought or farther forward than you thought. So, so just do that exploration. Um, and then also if the pain that you're experiencing is in your upper back, uh, that's actually, I, I think there's a lot of muscle tone going on with that. And so, so it, it may be good actually to just sit with it and uh, you know, as long as it's not like agony, stick with it. Um, so you're saying it's getting strengthened by sitting? Exactly. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Because uh, it's, it's very typical. And I mean, I, I will say this is true of me as, if, as well as it's very typical for there to be like not that much muscle strength back here. And when you start sitting upright a lot, um, first of all, if you don't have much muscle strength back here, then your back will tend to slump and that can actually make your whole seating posture less good. So, so there's a tendency to, to, to do this because, you know, to, 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 to pull back and hold your back more straight because it actually makes the rest of your seating posture more comfortable, but then you get pain in your back, in your upper back, but it's just muscle pain and it, it, it tends to go after a while. So that can be something to play with. That said, I mean, you know, it really depends on you. You certainly shouldn't tough it out when, when there's an injury occurring. People have that issue, but I don't think it's an injury. Yeah. But if it's not an injury occurring, then it can be really, uh, fruitful to, to sort of sit through it and see if you can like notice what's going on. The other thing to notice about muscle pain when you're sitting is that there's free, it's frequently the case that there's actually some muscle that's being tensed doesn't need to be to hold you in your seating position. So it's got nothing really to do with the fact that you're sitting. Like if you, if you were to lie down and do the same meditation, the same muscle might tense. And so, um, 
So it can be worthwhile to investigate that as well. Like see if, see if there's a particular muscle that's being tensed, like just, you know, if it's really quite painful, then you should be able to identify where the pain is. And so doing that investigation can lead you to notice, oh, wow, I'm tensing like this muscle that I totally don't need to tense. Can I let it go? Well, maybe you can, maybe you can't, but knowing that that's happening can be really useful and you can investigate it further once you notice it. So that's my take on it. Probably okay. somebody else here would have a different take on it. That was kind of a hint, but that's all right. I mean, just keep working with it. And like, everyone has this stuff, right? And it ha and actually it happens at different times. You do it at a retreat, you're going to have this stuff. Uh, you're all, almost certainly, you could potentially actually have a retreat that doesn't come up. But this stuff does come up all the time for different people at different times. Um, over time, they kind of decreases because um, you just get used to sitting and it's a body getting used to sitting. It's also a mind getting used to sitting. Um, and then the mind can easily focus on the tiniest little discomfort and magnify it a hundredfold or more. So that's one thing to be aware of, that you can't always, um, you know, necessarily trust what you're feeling is a, is a reflection on reality. Like, oh my God, it feels like my, my back is on fire. It's probably not on fire. Okay, thanks. I look out for that. Thanks. Georgina. Ah, I found the unmute button. <laughs> I just wanted to comment that um, I've had a very similar week, actually. I've injured, I've got an old injury. I've, I fell off a horse back in February and broke ribs. Okay. Um, and then this week, I must have pulled something in my lower back. So it's made sitting very uncomfortable. And that, with the old injury, has made, you know, lots of sitting positions haven't worked. Um, and I've spent the week in that comfortable chair there, which is really comfortable, but is a great exercise in um, watching strong illness. <laughs> so, um, but I have found a, a really nice sit where... I could feel the dullness coming up and I felt the awareness crop up. Oh, dullness. And as soon as the awareness popped up, the dullness disappeared only for a few minutes, but it was a really nice exercise in realizing that the intention can, and the awareness can work together without me efforting to try and get rid of the dullness. Yep. That was really helpful. Yeah. That's a really nice result when that happens. That's, that's, that's evidence that you're, that you've, that you've succeeded to some extent in, in training yourself to, to counteract strong dullness automatically. And as time goes by, that should become more and more automatic until at some point, you know, it's just not, a, it's just not an issue unless you're really sleepy or something. Yeah. I hope so. <laughs> That'd be nice. <laughs> yep. Yep. Thanks. Yeah. Does anybody else want to talk about anything? This could be like our shortest meditation meetup ever. Tom, I mean, no pressure. If you don't want to talk about anything, it's fine. We just get to sit and, and smile at each other for a little bit. So that's all right too. Yeah, 
I was thinking we could meditate together. Madness. <laughs> uh, I, I don't mean to, to dismiss that. It's just, um, I, for some reason, like, it, it's interesting. Like, I actually have a pretty strong resistance to doing group online meditations, um, even though, like, when I was doing the Finders course, we did them all the time. And, uh, but they were specific practices that we were doing that were actually group noting practices. And uh, those were quite fun. Um, I suppose we could do one of those if anybody wants to. So something I've done in uh, sessions led by Vince Horn is called social noting. Yeah. Is it sort of thing? Um, maybe. Uh, oh, so possibly not. Social, I think social noting is... Um, just saying out loud what comes up. Yeah. You know. Right. So, so that's one thing that you can do. Um, the practice that I'm talking about is specifically socially noting awareness. So you're actually like uh, trying to describe awareness. Um, and that's a fun practice, but I, I don't know, you know, like the problem is like maybe not everybody signed up to come do social noting practice. So, I don't want to force people to do a practice that they didn't come here for. I have a question or, or a thought around social noting, actually. It's, it's, um, is it, Ken, I don't know if I heard in the past, did you um, uh, read some of the Stoic uh, philosophers? Is that is I correct in that? Ken? Yeah, yeah, I spent a bit of time reading uh, Marcus Aurelius. And um, have you read some of Seneca? Um, not very much, no. Well, the thing that makes me think of it is it's uh, on his, uh, in his, uh, let, his book, it's called the, uh, On the Shortness of Life. And uh, he's writing letters to this fellow, uh, Tim, Timothy. And he's talking about how, how you really should, um, you know, how, how everybody wastes the time doing the things that are not really important to them. And then they, they regret or they think down the, down the line they're going to do the things that are important to them. And so that's it. Being in that place, which would be finder's course uh, terminology, like location four, where you could just spend all your time there. But with the social noting, the thing that I understand with that is that it's the mirror neurons that it's that when you're doing it, it's different than your regular meditation because now you're getting feedback from another person and, and we have a whole set of neurons, the uh, mirror neurons that is meant to get that empathy and feeling. So it's sort of, uh, it's the need to get back away from that isolated uh, I don't want to say bliss, but, you know, perfect spot. You finally, you're looking for that perfect spot. You find that perfect spot, but then do you have to leave it? So I guess that's just general observations. It's funny. There's, um, in uh, Mahayana Buddhism, there's, there's a term that, that is sometimes uh, passed around called the terror of a lower peace. 
And so somebody who, who is a Mahayana Buddhist practitioner uh, would be terrified of this because uh, when you reach that place, you're satisfied and everything is okay and you don't have to do anything. And um, so, and the problem with that is that, is that it means that as you're, as you're describing, you know, you, you just, you just sit there in that place and you don't do anything because why would you? And uh, so from a, a Bodhisattva's perspective, that is a, a really bad outcome. And so there's a lot of effort put into trying to prime yourself so that when you go through that stage of awakening, that you wind up um, acting on the, on the wish for enlightenment and not on, you know, not just sit there and be satisfied. Um, so it's really interesting, you know, you see this sort of thing in a lot, I think in a lot of traditions in various ways. And that's, um, have you ever uh, read the cross palm about after apple picking time? <laughs> uh, I don't remember it, so I can't you know, say for sure. It's about a guy, it's, he's been picking apples and he's just, he's just done. He's mm -hmm. just, over so it's just uh you know metaphorically towards life so that so my point with what you were saying is you're saying the bodhisattva is terrified of of getting to that point where you're settling for a lesser perfection yeah but the reality is that that's all there is is a lesser perfection you have to at some point that's all you have if you if you have to and if you can let go yeah, I mean, you know, the bodhisattva idea is that you're actually, um, you're trying to, to give that away, right? So, so, yeah, of course, you want everybody to reach that place where they're free of suffering. Uh, you, you want to reach that place where you're free of suffering, but you, you want others to, to reach it as well. And so you, it's not that you're going to, you know, leave that place. It's that while you're in that place, the activity that you're going to be engaged in is not just sitting there, but acting to help others to reach it as well. Now, what I mean is that no matter, you know, what you do in your life, at some point, your life's going to end. And you have, oh, yeah. you have to, you know, you're saying you're going to be terrified for settling. So, you know, you have to settle for whatever you were able to do, you know, and you have to be at peace with that, too. That's what I was trying to say. Yeah, I mean, that sort of that sort of plays into this whole thing that we've been seeing with, uh, uh, you know, with Chuladasa in the, in the past month where, you know, I mean, he, he's taught us some amazing stuff and um, he's a, a wise person who has, uh, I think, done a lot of benefit for the world and, and yet, you know, things have gone a little bit off the rails for him. And that's pretty much the way life goes, you know, no matter what peak you reach. Um, there will come a time when things go off the rails. And uh, so that's, that's not what the, the Mahayana practitioners are referring to as the terror of a lower peace. That's just accepting the, the, the reality of the body, which is that the body decays and dies. Um, but uh, no, the, the lower peace is actually that sort of location for a place where if you, if you land there without any interest in doing anything but just landing there, it's, yeah, it's but everybody lands somewhere, you know, it's like, it's, yeah. you know, if that's where you're at, then, you know, it's, I'm not, it's not for me to say, to judge and say that's, that's no. not good enough, you know, so. Not at all. All of these things are personal choice. 
Like right. the, the Bodhisattva is the one who's terrified of it. Someone else wouldn't be. Got it. Thank you. Yeah. You were going to say, Ken? Yeah, I was just going to say the terror of a local piece is nothing more than a optimization settling on a local minimum instead of a global minimum. Yes. <laughs> Tom? How do you know whether you're at a local or global minimum? How do you, even if you reach the global minimum, how do you know it's not local? I think the answer to that is that you never reach a global minimum that you can be sure is a global minimum. And so you need to have some heuristic for evaluating, right? That's it, uh, Joshua. J Joshua Bach talks about the uh, difference between mathematics and computation is that you can have anything computational has to be something that can actually be done, whereas things that are mathematical, anything could be mathematical, anything imaginary that you want, but the computational means it has to be actual in reality. So that would be perhaps a difference between a local and a global maximum. It's true that, that the way that um, total enlightenment is expressed in, in, uh, in the Mahayana tradition is very, very much like what you just said, Steve. It's very mathematical. Um, it's, it's, almost, uh, it's almost like uh, the way that, you know, in, in math you would talk about infinities, right? So, yeah. Anyway, Joltz has had his hand up for quite a while, so let's let you talk. Hi, Ted. Um, Hi. Ted, I have a question for you uh, about your uh, intend release notice loop. When, no. uh, when this is applied apply to following the breath. So I'm, the intention I'm interested in is the uh, following the breath sensation, that intention, so staying with them continuously. Um, so, um you're, you're fading in and out, and it's actually quite difficult to understand what you're saying. Am I better now? Yeah, it's better. Okay. Uh, yeah, that's fine. Did you catch what I said until now, though? No, I, I cut like half of it. <laughs> okay. So I was saying that I wanted to talk to you about intend release notice and apply mm -hmm. it to following breath sensations. So the intention would be to like stick on the sensations or stay with them. Like that's the intention you would tell yourself. My question is, how is this different than just attempting to go for effortless attention every like three seconds or five seconds? Like setting the intention and then letting go. Mm -hmm. and then just waiting until it fails and then resetting the intention. That's the same as just trying to go for effortlessness, but that's not a good thing to do. Like that's not a, a way to build stable attention. Uh, what am I yeah. So, so it is a little bit problematic. Essentially the intend release notice loop is um, sort of uh, the opposite extreme of the uh, efforting loop. Right. And the reason that I wrote that, uh, that, article is because I've noticed that it's very common for people to really, and, and this was the case for me, it's very common for people to really uh, use efforting as a way to keep their attention stable. And the problem is you can really get quite far in the practice doing that. And then you hit a dead end because, uh, because you haven't actually trained your mind to do these things automatically. And so, um, so when I offer the intend release notice loop, article to people, it's not to say that it's authoritative or that it's correct. 
it's that I think it's interesting to, to think about it, and I found it fruitful to apply it um, because uh, it counteracts that tendency to try to over-control. Um, and I think that you could actually use just the intend release notice loop to, pr to progress through the stages. Um, I think there's a risk when you use just the intend release notice loop that you may um, stagnate because you have to be really uh, honest with yourself about it. Um, and there's a tendency to, to miss things that you're not doing. So, so I wouldn't say that, that like, you know, like when I suggest that people read that article, and maybe I should be more clear about this. When I suggest that people read that article, I'm not saying this is the correct way to do TMI. What I'm saying is, here's something to think about. And you should maybe try this, particularly if you're having the particular problem that I was responding to. This is one of the reasons why I'm kind of like, I don't know how much you follow the way that I moderate the TMI subgroup, but the reason that I moderate it that way is because I want people to ask questions and get answers rather than people just coming up and saying, do this, like giving, giving explicit advice, because explicit advice is almost never correct for everybody. And so whenever somebody gets up and starts speaking authoritatively, it actually creates as many problems as it solves. I mean, for somebody, that authoritative speech is going to be exactly right, but for someone else, it's not. So when I recommend that article to people, it's because I'm replying to something that they said that made me think, oh, maybe you should try this practice. It's funny how relative uh, these things are. I, I actually came to that article uh, a long time ago and found it immensely useful. Mm -hmm. Reading it again recently, I found it to be the opposite of what I needed to do. Yep. Um, so yeah, I understand what you're saying. Yeah. So I can, I'm really more interested in uh, how following in TMI should be done then, or what the idea is in TMI at least, or what your idea is. So you were saying that the, we should be training the mind to do it automatically. Mm -hmm. So I guess the idea is basically what the thought, uh, the intend release notice loop is describing, maybe just not in those terms, but the idea is that the mind follows the breath for some amount of time and then it, it slips off and then an awareness should catch that that occurred and intention should automatically arise correct, and then you should be on the breath again for some length of time. Yeah. Yeah. That kind of like, that doesn't jive with the language in stage six that says like continual diligent effort is needed. So what's the deal? Like in uh, my experience, that doesn't work. Well, so how do you how do you engage in continuous diligent effort uh, i'm basically just consciously choosing to be with the breath like every every quarter second every second whatever so would you describe that as checking in um i mean i'm intentionally directing my attention there so yeah okay uh, yeah so so what i'm getting at here is that is that in fact when you're doing stage six um you can think about it in terms of intentionally directing attention, but that's what the intend release notice loop does. So, so uh, how you model it is, is not terribly important. What's important is, is, so one of the things you could be doing in stage six is um, uh, focusing on the result, right? So, so focusing on like, I am going to try to have my attention all over the body all the time. And, um, and what tends to happen if you, if you do that is that you, um, I mean, essentially it's always an intent release notice loop, but it gets to be really, really tight, right? And, and you wind up, it winds up becoming very effortful and unpleasant. 
And so the, the, that's what, when I express it in terms of intent release notice, the point of that is to just say like the amount of time that's between intend and notice um, should be as long as possible, right? Like that is to say, it should be exactly the length of the amount of time that's required really. So as long as possible isn't the right way to put it, but it should be, it should be no longer than is required to notice that you need to correct and no shorter than is required to notice that you need to correct. And of course, you don't know how long that is, but the point is when you, when you really tighten it up, um, you're not, I don't think that that's uh, particularly healthy, but you know, you, you, you're the one that's doing the practice. So, so you kind of have to figure it out for yourself in a sense. You just like the intent release notice loop is one way of looking at how you might want to practice. Um, but that said, um, Chula Dasa does make a really strong distinction between diligence and effort. So in Chula Dasa's way of putting it, diligence is when you uh, sit down and you know what you're supposed to be doing and you do it. Effort is when you sit down and you try to get a particular result. How are those different? So... Uh, you don't know what result you're going to get when you try to do something, right? That's true, but you still try for a particular one. Like you have, when you're doing- You have something in mind. You have an intention. Okay. <laughs> so, um, yeah. So, so, so diligence is basically, is basically the process of having the right intention and then, and then noticing when it went wrong and correcting for it. Um, and yeah, I, you know, maybe I'm actually sounding a little partisan for the whole intent release notice thing. I mean, I've, I found it to be very helpful, but, but yeah, it's, it, the problem is it's like really easy to do something other than what you're, than follow the model, right? And, and, and also the model is just being expressed in words. So, you know, it's not necessarily correct. Like what I mean when I say intent release notice may not be what you understand when you hear it. So, yeah. yeah, I don't know. Thanks for the discussion. Sure. <laughs> can, I, can I throw something in there, Ted? Uh, sure. It, it, it almost sounds like what you're describing as sort of the effort and the quarter second check-in versus the, the notice and the just wait as long as possible is almost the difference between a feed-forward and a feedback system. Mm. The effort, you're just trying to feed forward, just trying to push, push, push. And if feedback happens, that's sort of an error in the algorithm. It's sort of, it's not sort of designed in as part of the correction process. It's just telling you that you're not pushing hard enough in your feed forward, your open loop aspect. But if you're just setting the intention and, and then doing nothing more than watching, you're not training the feed forward muscle, you're training the feedback branch of the, the feedback path, you're improving the, the, the sensitivity of the detector mm -hmm. of not seeing the breath. And so it's, yeah, and I think this is what you've said before that the goal of the training isn't as much to watch the breath as it is to train the mind to detect when you're not watching the breath, which again is the difference between 
sort of an open loop, just keep pushing as hard as you can feed forward and a sort of a well-tuned feedback system. Mm -hmm. Again, going back to my engineering analogies, because that's the only thing that ever makes sense to me. Yeah. Yeah. That's interesting. I hadn't really thought about putting it in those terms. We have uh, surprisingly many hands up now. So it sounds like everybody wants to say something. I think Nate is first. Yeah, I mean, there, there are a few things, interesting things from there, but um, I feel like, um, yeah, when I was like putting more effort, I would say it's like intend release, intend release, but not like just intend and release, there's like no notice or notice doesn't come like uh, in a sequence. Maybe it comes like in parallel through like awareness or whatever the feedback is. But yeah, I, I think, like, I almost say like I do that because you can intend all the time. If I could intend, 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 like I'd probably end up doing that. But yeah, like uh, for stage six, actually I talked to a few people about this and when I was, I, I, I had this issue in stage six where I just get like some song in my head and I just like, it would just not go away. And I was like, man, this is super frustrating. But uh, so like, I just intended harder, but that didn't work as well. Um, I talk, yeah, anyway, like when I talk to other people, like uh, one of the TMI teachers, she said, um, she said, yeah, you just, uh, you just, you just do the stage six practice and you don't, you don't look for a certain outcome. Like the, the mind pacifies itself. Okay. And, um, but which I thought was very interesting because when I read stage six, it sort of felt like, oh, you ignore all these other distractions. And so I was trying really hard to ignore them and like holding like my attention like really hard and um but no that that just it didn't work out well yeah i mean it should be it shouldn't it be the case that like you know tell me tell me if this makes sense that when you're doing the 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 breathing with the body that you just continually notice that oh i'm 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 still not fully with the body and that's your adjustment. And, and, and ultimately, when you get to the point where you're doing the breathing with the body to where it consumes all of your available attention, then the ignoring is just happening. You're not doing it. You're not forcing it. It's just happening because you just don't have enough attention to also pay attention to that other thing. Yeah, that sounds right. I just, yeah, I, I, I don't, it's definitely like at some point, I, I felt like, Later on, um, I went through the climbing up the stages a few times and I think of my latest few ones, I actually like put like very little effort into it. And mm -hmm. it's just like, you know, you intend to um, keep the attention on your breathing sensations and you want to feel them clear. Um, like you, you hold the intention to do so, but you try not to look for the outcome because I later on realized like looking for the outcome actually agitates my mind quite a yeah. lot. And so you're like, okay, let me try to do that. And if that happens, that's great. And, um, and actually very little effort is needed to like hold that intention and the rest sometimes just like falls into place and that's really nice. Cool. But then I get into stage seven and I'll want to do close following and then like I hit it with full effort and, uh, cause I just like want to keep on tearing things apart, but that, yeah, sorry, that's, that's a separate story. Thanks.
Okay, well, I guess my other question, since like nobody else has their hand up, is um, you said it's not very useful to give explicit advice at times. So what, what's, uh, what do you give instead? Uh, ask questions. Wouldn't asking questions be like sort of as a tool to drill down and be able to give explicit advice? Well, the thing is that, that the reason why, so this is actually, a, it's, it's a real challenge because um, even when you're giving explicit advice, the explicit advice is utterly useless unless the person who's hearing it gets it, right? And the way that you get it is, is not that I somehow magically say the right words that, that convey what, exactly what you need. It's this process of, of interaction and you thinking about what I've said. And at some point when you're thinking about what I said, then you realize what it is that I mean in a way that's useful for you. Um, and so the important thing is that realization. And so didactic instruction is just one way to get to that realization, but often it's easier to get to that realization by just asking questions. Like I might have some inkling of what's going on, what, what problem you're struggling with. And if I can ask you the right questions, then you'll just notice it on your own. And I don't even have to tell you, but if, if nobody asks you those questions then you never get there. And so, so sometimes like, and by the way, if I tell you intellectually what it is, then I might actually prevent you from having that realization because you just get more into the mental model. And you don't actually get to the point where you're like, oh, yeah, you know, where you see it. So does that make sense? Yeah, it does. Yeah. Yeah, I think, uh, I think your people have, have taken your article as gospel, though, like um, uh -oh. the intent. Like, I see it being referred a lot. Yeah, well, yeah, I know. And it's, it's, it's hard because I think it is really useful, but, but that doesn't mean that it's right. So, okay, um, go ahead. Yeah. So, you know, it, it, this is why like it's really important for people to ask questions and get into the, get into the, the back and forth. And, and, um, you know, I sometimes hassle people about, um, giving really explicit didactic answers, even though I do the, do that a lot too. It's just, you know, it's, it's a, it's a, if I, if I, you know, it might make sense for me to actually update the article a little bit to say like, this is one way of thinking about this. Yeah. I think that might be pretty cool. I think, yeah. um, I think when most people see it, they, I don't know. It's, it's like, it's also the effect of the internet. They see it like, Oh, okay. This is like the one way to do it. Or like, <laughs> this is this the is solution the right to my problem. <laughs> yeah. Well, it's, it's so satisfying to find like this thing that you can say, Oh yeah, that's it. And then, you know, the problem is what you really need is to be sort of do the scientific method all the time over and over again. Well, there's something that Shinzen Young says about, um, you know, as a meditation teacher, if you don't say anything, there's a way that you're doing a disservice. If you say something, right, there's a way that you are misleading people. You will mislead people in a sense, right? They, they will take what you say and go in wrong directions. And what you say is not like the ultimate truth, right? It's, it's, and it's not, a, like, it's not the answer to all situations. Um, and what I 
so I, yeah, I, I guess I, I agree generally sort of with, with, with Ted um, about the questions. Um, the way I think about it is, and what seems to get the most traction is just the um, reflecting on what's the problem, right? And, and there's so much like good juice in that. Um, and, and that's actually the most important thing. It's great when someone has like a problem <laughs> because they have some motivation to fix it. But often what people's um, idea of the problem is not the problem. Yeah. <laughs> so that's where that question kind of come in and, and to help sort of explore that. But yeah, there's so much, um, there's, yeah, there's so much juice in working with that. But if people don't have a problem, you know, they're not, you could you could say, a lot of like a lot of great things and it won't um you know it'll just go over their head or you know if you don't know what the problem is that they think then yeah they'll often just take what what you say and go in some you know odd direction it's like wait no no i there was yeah. so yeah that's a key a key component it's sort of um if there's a, mu a mutual understanding or at least the, the the teacher or whatever the person's giving the advice really knows kind or as close as possible, right? Heading in that direction, knowing what the problem is. And then the advice can be a little bit more, um, or the questions or whatever can be a, lot, a little bit more uh, fruitful. But yeah, it's, and, and that's a challenge, right? It's, it's, a, it's a huge challenge. Yeah, it's interesting. There's actually, uh, um, Rodrigo mentioned there's a Zen book called You Have to Say Something. And uh, if you read the beginning of Zen Mind, Beginner's Mind, Basically, the whole thing is a, is a is an essay on like you know this problem. Like he basically comes out and says, "I've found that when I give people advice, you know, the outcome is this, and when I don't give people advice, the outcome is exactly the same thing." So, like, what's the function of the advice? But you know, anyway, uh, Matt has had his hand up for a while, so let's go with Matt. Hey, so, um, so guys, I, this is a. a a totally shifting topic here for a second, but I, uh, um, I'd spent very, you know, many years being able to get to the stage where I can actually uh, uh, sort of calm the mind and bring it to uh, a, you know, a, a decent level of attention with a broad open awareness. And that's really settled in. And um, I found that I can you know, do that repeatedly, which is wonderful. The thing is, <laughs> as my, uh, uh, as my practice deepens and as I uh, get more satisfaction on the cushion, I find I am off the cushion getting far more sensitive uh, to real life events. I find myself snapping or, or, or uh, cutting people off in ways I would never have done before. Um, and at nighttime, just crazy wild dreams that, that yeah. I, again, would never have experienced before. So I wondered if anybody else had just been through this sort of thing I'm not going crazy, right? I just want <laughs> a little bit of emotional support to say, this seems weird and a little bit scary. <laughs> yeah. So you're not going crazy. Um, I am curious to know what else is going on because what you're describing actually sounds very familiar to me. Um, and it can be a result of insight. Um, so if you have certain kinds of insights, then um, there can be a tendency especially right after that happens to uh, the, the sort of the way that you were avoiding being a jerk before isn't working anymore. And um, 
and there's a new way to avoid being a jerk, but you, you need to learn that new way. And, uh, and the problem is that when somebody says something that's just utterly stupid, there's a tendency to respond by saying that was utterly stupid because it was. And, uh, but that you're, one of the things that's helped me with that, uh, and, and this, this may be useful for you, I, I make no promises, um, is to try to listen to what's actually being communicated and not listen to the words, not listen to the meaning of the words. Because often when somebody says something stupid, you know, I'm, I'm being, you know, overly, they're really not saying something stupid. They're, they're, what's going on is there's something going on for them that caused them to emit those words. And so rather than focusing on the words, try to focus on what's behind the words. Um, and if, you, if you're able to like tr make that little mental, you know, mindset shift, then um, my experience has been that you often become a really good listener and suddenly you, you, you make the transition from being like that guy who used to be really nice and is now an asshole to, wow, he's even nicer than he used to be. <laughs> so <laughs> something to think about. Um, there are practices you can do. Like you can, um, one of the practices that you can do, and this is, this is actually most helpful to do with somebody who's um, also a practitioner and not just with random strangers, although at some point you do need to do it in real life as well, is when you're listening to someone, don't give them any body language feedback at all. Don't nod, don't say, mm-hmm, don't do any of those things. Just receive what they're saying with and and notice what you'll notice when you do that is all of the impulses arising to do various things to to signal to them that you're listening or signal to them that you agree with them or that you disagree with them and just like try to learn to notice those things and let go of them um, rather than acting on them not because you're always going to do that but just to, just to to get familiar with with what's going on when you're in a conversation with someone uh, also notice like when you're in a conversation with someone is there a narrative going on in my head about what I'm going to say when they stop talking. Just notice that. Um, because what you'll find is when you, you will notice that, right? And, and as soon as you notice that, you'll be like, well, this is silly. Why am I not listening to them? <laughs> so, yeah. or, or, or who, who is that talking? As I uh, sometimes yeah. listen, listen to myself, I'm like, who exactly is saying that? Yeah. Uh, yeah. yeah. So it can be a really, it can be a really good practice to do. Um, and, you know, there's never a wrong, particularly that practice, there's never a wrong time to be doing that practice because you know what, when they stop talking, something's going to come out of your mouth or silence is going to happen because you don't have anything to say. Both of those are perfectly fine outcomes. They might think like it's a that. little weird, but, but sure. you know, then, then you can talk about that. So it's fine. I think that's good. I think it gives me the opportunity to, to pause and uh, get ahead of my uh, emotional reactions. Um, exactly. And I, I think probably to your question about what insights perhaps have triggered this, this has really followed on from my ability to, um, or sort of recent ability to stable, stabilize uh, uh, my observation of the three characteristics of all of the phenomenon as they're, mm -hmm. as they're constantly changing, as they're clearly impersonal. Mm -hmm. And as it's completely futile to get a, try and get any sort of lasting pleasure from them, <laughs> as that's that's really what's driven the, the stabilization. Uh, yep. My attention allowed me to become a lot more sensitive. I think perhaps the that sensitivity to a, a stimulus in uh, is uh, wonderfully helpful on the cushion. Sometimes yes. perhaps uh, a little uh, uh, can add some extra triggering if you're not particularly mindful off the cushion. So maybe that's what's. It's going on, so maybe this is good advice to sort of to pause 
uh, and get ahead of that, that triggering. So yeah. Another thing that you will probably notice, and, and I think this is a fairly common experience. I've heard other people talk about this is that after you've had that kind of an insight um, into the three characteristics or, or whatever, however it comes up for you, um, is uh, that there can be a tendency for things that, that you really wouldn't have noticed very much before to suddenly become much more uh, noticeable and much more uh, painful. Um, and, uh, and what that can feel like it's a bad thing at first because like it is more painful. Like, like suddenly, suddenly like something that really wasn't bothering you before. Like I can, I can recall like saying something to someone and then just like feeling like really strong regret, like the next day. And it was something that they didn't even know I'd said to them. Like when I asked them about it, they were like, what, what are you talking about? But I noticed and I knew what was behind it. And so that like additional insight into what's going on, the, 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 the unpleasant thing about that is that, is that it really can cause quite a bit of suffering when, when, it's, when you're reflecting on it. But what's good about it is that um, it also produces that feeling of, um, I don't want to do this anymore. And, <laughs> and that actually is a very powerful uh, part of the, of the maturing process. So to some extent, you know, when that happens, it's, it's good to just be like, oh, okay, I'm experiencing pain because of this. It's okay. Like this is, this is part of the process. It's okay. And not freak out about it because there can be a tendency to be like, wait a minute, I was supposed to be happier. <laughs> <laughs> right. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Well, thank you very much. That's uh, great advice. Thank you. Yeah. Glad to help. So, uh, does anybody else want to raise their hand? Hi, Laura. Hey, Ted, I have a question. Yeah. This is, uh, a little bit more like lighthearted advice. Kind of I, uh, so I have a friend who, who took LSD recently and has found like a, a very open, like open, powerful engagement with anything spiritual. Um, so he's going around talking about unity and uh, like broad open awareness in the moment with everybody he meets. And he's kind of reading every, every like half-baked philosophical or spiritual, anything he runs into is being like devoured and somehow integrated in uh, the remnants of, of his LSD trip find. Mm -hmm. So I, uh, I tried to lead him in a good direction. He was, he tried to. He was reading, or he told me he was going to read The Power of Now, Eckhart Tolle's book, which uh, would just point him more in the same direction, but give him absolutely nothing to do. So I said, that's bad, don't do that. Uh, and I suggested a book for him as a replacement, which was Locke, uh, Locke Kelly's book, The Way of Effortless Mindfulness. Uh, I had not actually read this book when I suggested it, but I had been suggested to me by many people who I respect and like I, I think they have solid background in, in Dharma stuff. Um, so I gave him this book and he started reading it and I read some of it myself and I now think this is a terrible thing to give him. <laughs> Oops. I don't understand what I'm supposed to do. Do I like tell him? You know, this is actually like, this is, you shouldn't listen to this and like take it out of his hands or... or you're hosed. <laughs> Just work with it. 
You're just hosed. So, so basically what happens when, when you do something like that? I mean, whenever somebody is in that place, this is, this is where that question about like, like, is it better to give people advice or, or, or just ask them questions really comes up because, you know, when somebody has a really profound experience like that, um, telling them what it means or trying to give them a framework for what it means doesn't help unless they've asked you what it means. And, and then the more that you can express it as your own theories and like, you don't have to believe this. I'm just telling you what I think the more they're able to not resist it. But, um, but what can be really helpful is just asking questions because um, it's when you're when you're having like these sort of sort of uh, ineffable uh, experiences, um, words actually just kind of step on them, and uh, and so the more words you throw at it, the the like more stepping you're doing and the less helping you're doing, and so so. Um, there, there isn't really a good answer, but, but generally speaking, uh, you know, the more you can, the more you can give them the impression that it might be worth asking you questions and the more you can just like sort of be there for them as, as a sounding board, as somebody to resonate with, um, the more you're helping them and, and, you know, trying to give explicit advice is like, you know, unless, unless they've asked you for the advice, it's, it's a little bit hopeless. Um, it actually did ask for advice in there. Okay. Constantly trying to, exactly the problem you described, they're trying to put their experience into words, not succeeding and trying mm -hmm. to find someone else's words or, or have a conversation that kind of maps their internal experience correctly. <laughs> and they're just struggling to do that. So they asked for me advice. Yeah. There's also, especially when you have an experience like that under the influence of drugs, there's a tendency to grasp to the experience um, because uh, you don't know how you did it. You don't know if when you take the drug again next time, you're going to be able to do it again. Um, and so you want to be able to like nail it down somehow so that you can have it, you can continue to have it. And um, you can't nail it down. Like, like the, what happened was the, the LSD experience, you know, sort of using the, the, the subminds model, it quieted a bunch of subminds and allowed a bunch of subminds that normally aren't on top to suddenly be on top. And wow, that was really awesome. And, and you know, wouldn't it be nice to have that again? And you know, maybe if he drops acid again, the same thing will happen, or maybe he'll have a bad trip. I mean, the problem is it's very questionable. Um, for someone who's had an experience like that, one thing that I don't know where, where he lives, but there are people who are doing experimentation with psilocybin in very controlled circumstances and doing microdosing um, and doing curated experiences where they actually try to help you through the process. Um, you know, obviously the, the, the one thing that this guy could do that would probably be really great would be to just start doing practices that get, get him there like, you know, without drugs, but there can often be a lot of resistance to that because it was just so easy when it was with the LSD. It's like, why would I do all of that work when, so, so then for someone like that saying, you know, here's a psilocybin clinic you can go to, the place I'm thinking of is in Austin, so it might not be at all convenient, but there's probably others. Um, the situation with my friend is actually pretty good because he's sort of, he's been exposed to this meditation kind of 
idea kind of right. laterally for a while and mm -hmm. he sort of has an understanding that he wants his experience to be reproducible or approachable in some consistent meaningful mm -hmm. way uh, that's the way to go so it's not something i'm trying to impose it's more that's something you know, like reach out for my yeah. my issue is that i sent him in a bad direction i think oh yeah i mean you know so what like it'll 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 work out um Send them, you know, so I, I created a subreddit called slash r slash awakening questions, which is actually specifically for people to, to go to when they, when it's like some weird shit has happened and they want to have, they want to ask questions about it. Um, so uh, that can be, you know, if you, if you want to send them there, that could be cool. See you later, Gilbert. Um, you know, no pressure, but, but that's an option. Uh, but yeah, you know, just like, and, and the other thing is like, you can tell them, wow, you know, I read this Locke Kelly book and, you know, I hadn't actually, I mean, just be honest, right? Like I hadn't actually, and maybe you've already done this, you know, like there are some things in here that are pretty wacky. And, you know, if you want to talk about it, let's talk about it. Like, don't, don't say it sucks and it's bad because obviously, you know, I mean, I've talked to Locke Kelly. He's a nice guy. He's interesting. Like, like, you know, it doesn't mean that, that, uh, everything he says is, is, is gospel truth, but you know, he's not a harmful person as far as I can tell. So, you know, just, just roll with it. Wait, I'm just curious, like, um, why do you think it was a bad idea? Um, so I guess one is that, uh, stuff that's in Locke Kelly's book, I don't know much about it. So I, my exposure is basically just like a Wikipedia article and his book. Part of his book. Um, they seem to take some, conscious state that's kind of like the witness state, but accessible easily. And they reify it and turn it into this thing where they identify the self with it. I'm like, this is setting up an ontology that's just bad. And from a Theravada point of view, this is not a thing. Like they're just locked into some particular conscious state and really attached to it and painting it over and over and over uh, and refining it. But that's not, that's not anything. That's just some passing state. But that's sort of a like long, like that doesn't really matter. What, what matters more, I guess, is for this person is that the instructions are not very useful. Um, they're instructions like, take a deep breath, now let your awareness sink to your heart center. What does that mean? That's not an instruction. That's just saying, achieve the end result. Yes. Awakening. No. <laughs> not anything. So the book is just bad in a more meaningful way, more immediately meaningful. So, so Jolt, one thing to say about that is I have exactly the same reaction to instructions like that. So, you know, testify, but other people hear those instructions and know exactly what to do and don't have any trouble following them. And, and, and it really works for them. Like Andrea doesn't have any trouble following that instruction. She like, she, she went and studied with, uh, what's her name? Uh, Sharon Salzberg, maybe I can't remember, but, uh, somebody, uh, who, who gives similar instructions. And I heard one of her talks and I was like, this is horrible. I couldn't, how, why did you spend a weekend with this woman? And, and the answer is she found it really beneficial. So, you know, you, you, another thing to be, to bear in mind is like, you had an impulse to recommend Locke Kelly. You don't know why you had that impulse. Like, don't second guess it. Like, like maybe it was actually the right book to recommend for your friend, even though it's totally the wrong book for you. Yes. So I, I read um, his other book, Shift Into Freedom, and I, I thought it was pretty good. Like, uh, the, the instructions are, I'd say, like more on the poetic side and less on the systematic side. For some people, it just resonates and they're able to drop into that. Uh, for some people, it's much harder. So, yeah. Yeah, maybe this is my bias coming from like the TMI world where people want very linear, very explicit instructions. So, uh, I, 
possible that these instructions would work for people, yeah. Yeah, well, it's funny, like, so, so you, you know, my history of doing the finders course, right? Like the instructions in the finders course, um, they're decently precise, but uh, sometimes, but other times, basically, it's like, go read this web page. And, you know, and here's, here's what I got out of it. And here are some things you could try and do, but basically go read this web page and come up with your own ideas. And it's like, you know, awakening practices are just like, the things that it's like weird, some of the stuff that works. And yet it does seem to work like for a lot of people, like, like headless way. Like, why does that work for anybody? It's crazy, but it does. <laughs> it's actually kind of awesome. So, you know, uh, I, yeah, I'm sorry. This is Matt. Yeah. I, yeah. I, I feel like, uh, you know, over the sort of the 10 years that I've really been practicing what has worked and what instructions appeal to me have really, really shifted. Yeah. I actually started out um, with, you know, some of the various sort of vague <laughs> instructions and didn't really get anywhere, but kind of had a sense there was something there. And then uh, shifts all various things. And, you know, the TMI instructions at one point um, were actually far too specific for me. And I needed to really work on more broad, establishing that sort of very broad, open uh, a sense of awareness um, and less on attention and focus because for me that was actually agitating and was counterproductive so i think there are many different ways into this and i think people tend to write their dharma book about the, the thing which probably made the biggest difference to them you know mm -hmm. um yeah. but I, i've definitely found that both things like lock kelly's instructions and things like kirtua das's instructions can be equally valuable in different ways at different times so you know, maybe, maybe this will be his way in. Maybe, maybe don't worry about it. Maybe this, this will appeal and he'll kind of want to get more specific. Um, so yeah, don't, don't worry about it. It'll work out. <laughs> yeah. One, one other book that comes to mind, I don't know if he read like, um, Michael Pond's book on like psychedelics. So, uh, I think I thought, so I, I never did any psychedelics, but the book like lays out the history of it. Um, and the author's own ex experimentation with it and sort of like, um, sort, I guess it sort of does put it into a little bit of a framework, like not, not a real framework, but it sort of gives you the entire background and it's, it's less of a, like there, there are parts of it that where the author talks about his own very mystical experiences and like, um, so I don't know. It's, it's just like, I feel like it sort of not solidifies, but it gives you some basis to think about it. His book is called uh, How to Change Your Mind. So I think it's pretty popular right now. Who's the author name? Can you maybe type it into the... Yeah, I'll look it up. Give me a second. That's a great book. And also um, building on that, I think it's the Gary Weaver talk that's mm. on your webpage, Ted. I think that <laughs> could be really useful for more background and linking things together. Um, but it wouldn't necessarily help with techniques. Yeah, I love that video. It's just, it's just, you know, yeah. yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Rodrigo, you've had your hand up for a while. What's going on? Uh, can you hear me okay? Yeah. Uh, I think there, there is a, a counterpart to what Ted was saying about uh, people finding, for example, the post on uh, intentional release and notice. And that's just as people 
want some answer that will solve everything. Sometimes I, I, I catch myself having to give an answer that solves everything. So sometimes a, a friend of mine that knows that, that I'm, that most of my friends know that I meditate, but they don't know how deep I am into it. So they don't know how much time I spend on Reddit and something like that. And I, I find it really funny, uh, Tucker Peck's, uh, I think it's the one escaping a lifetime of sentence in stage four, in which he speaks about, uh, you're the type of person that reads a 500 pages book and not satisfied with that, comes to Reddit and read a bunch of posts of things like that. And so I think uh, TMI and Reddit attracts a, a type of, of person that likes that type of, of, of instruction alike and likes things clearly. And sometimes I catch myself trying to give an answer that covers everything. And then, okay, so if I tell this person to read this book, they will get caught up in the in verifying the witness and I know that's bad, so I need to give them something that will go, go further than that. And it's actually, I, I can do anything and the person can ignore me and can do something else. And sometimes I just, I just try to give a good enough answer and hope for the best. And I, so I think, of course, uh, Ted, Ted's advice was good. You, you should be honest, just tell him maybe that you read a book and you thought it's not necessarily the best. But I don't think we we should worry too much about, oh my God, if I say something wrong, then they will destroy their lives or something like that. They, they will maybe be okay or probably be okay. Thanks, Rodrigo. All right, do we have any new topics? Well, uh, if we really don't have any new topics, we can, we can wrap this early, which is fine with me. But if somebody's really holding back and would actually like to say something, this is your last shot. Uh, okay, so I'll waste everyone's time. I'm curious about the Advaita Vedanta and the like Theravada ideas. How are these, so what are the like official answers in the doctrine about this? So Theravada seems to have an answer to this, this Advaita concept. And the answer is just like, no, they're wrong. That's just some state of consciousness, impermanent. Um, what's the Advaita response to that? Like what, I can't imagine how, what, I mean, I, I only know the one side of the story, the Theravada side. So obviously I don't know what their answer would be, but I'm curious, what, what could it be? What is it? Does anyone know? It's huh? the same thing. Uh, no, they're wrong. <laughs> Yeah, it's, it's really, it's really funny. Like, like, um, so, uh, funny is actually probably not the right word because it's a little sad, but, uh, so Jeffrey did a bunch of research as, as, you know, Jeffrey Martin, finder's course guy did a bunch of research, um, which he's talked about at some length. And one of the things that he found is that when people have their initial awakening experience, they develop a sort of a survivorship bias attitude towards whatever worked for them. And so everything else is wrong. And then um, there's this 
process of coming up with an intellectual model that explains why it's wrong. And um, I think that when you're looking at like Theravada saying that Advaita is wrong, and when you're looking at Advaita saying that Theravada is wrong, you should think in those terms. Um, it's not that either one of them is wrong. And of course, they both have a, a, a logical, very carefully detailed, soundly reasoned basis for saying that the other practice is wrong. But, you know, the thing that they're actually pointing at is ineffable. You can't talk about it in terms of a logical framework. I mean, you, you, can, you, can, you can, but but you're not actually touching it when you do that. And um, the other thing I would say is uh, there does seem to be uh, a, a, a sort of a, I don't know if it's binary, there may be more than, more than two directions you can go with this, but it does seem to be the case that there are people who uh, get to awakening through attention and people who get to awakening through awareness. And, uh, and that actually seems to be at the root of the difference between Advaita and Theravada. Um, and speaking as someone who got to awakening through awareness, um, I wouldn't be surprised if there are people in the Theravada tradition who think that what I got to is wrong. But my experience of it, you know, because I, like, I wasn't expecting to get to awakening through a tradition other than Buddhist meditation. That's what I studied. That's what I know. That's what I know really well. So for me, like, when I had that experience, what I found was that everything that I experienced had an exact analog in the other practices that I had studied at length and that didn't work for me. So, so from my perspective, it's really obvious that they're both pointing at the same thing and, and it's, it's all the, the differences have to do with, with language or with how they got there and not with actually what they got. Because like, you know, the, the Buddhist de description of the experience of, of seeing dependent arising, I mean, I had that exact experience and it was like, wow, <laughs> you know, but I didn't have it the way that, the way that, uh, the way that my teacher described it. So, you know. I wouldn't worry about it too much is what I guess what I'm getting at. Yeah, the interesting thing is, uh, well, like uh, the, the dude that created the diamond approach, like goes into all of them and he says like, they're all right, but they're also like different experiences. Like um, a lot of people try to like uh, overlay and compare the different ones and say like, oh, they're all the same one. And he says, ah, oh, they're, they're slightly different variations of like um, ultimate reality or whatever you call it. Yeah, I mean, Shuladasa talks about the five different realizations that you have um, and how they're all really pointing at the same central thing, but, you, but they're different experiences of it. And, you know, I haven't heard that same description from other people, but what he described totally makes sense to me. So, you know, again, it's like, you know, oh, and there's, you know, anybody reads Zen and the Art of Motorcycle Maintenance? He has a wonderful analogy in there. Um, which is that, uh, you know, the various paths to awakening are all paths up a mountain. And the mountain looks totally different depending on which path you're on. Like, like when you look around, what you see is totally different than what somebody who's on a different path up the mountain is going to see. But they all get to the mountaintop. And, you know, so, and, and by the way, you know, when you're like 90% of the way up the mountain, I think that, that, you know, the experiences are still fairly different but you're quite far along at that point. So, you know, it would be totally natural to say this is an awakened state, but 
it's different than that other state that that other guy is in. And so that other guy must be wrong if you're, if you're still in a frame of mind where you're doing that. But at some point, you're going to get to a frame of mind where you're like, no. Um, the Dalai Lama, uh, my teacher quotes him as having given a talk at one point. Somebody asked him, like, what's the difference between, uh, like, Islam and Buddhism and Christianity and Judaism and all these other things. And he said, well, you know, there are two ways to look at this. One of them is you look at it as like, there's, there's like, you know, Buddhism and there's Islam and there's Christianity and there's, um, you know, uh, whatever the other one was that I left out. Um, and, uh, I'm making little hand gestures that are very vertical here in case anybody's listening to this on a recording. And, um, there's a tendency to see them as all being different silos. Um, and there's another way to draw the line, which is how much are you practicing? And if you draw the line that way, then the similarities are much more than the differences. Um, so, so for somebody who's not really practicing, it seems like they're very different. And even for somebody who's practicing a lot, but not actually getting very far yet, the differences seem like they're a lot, but at some point they seem like they're a lot less. So, anyway, I didn't tell that as well as my, my llama did, so sorry about that. Thanks. Sure. You could uh, <clears throat> create a, an analogy based on rivers in the ocean. You know, there are a lot of different rivers. They all wind up in the same place. Yep. Yeah, although my favorite ocean analogy is still the one from, uh, what was that book? Um, I went into a movie recently uh, where, you know, you're trying to fill an ocean and you're just one droplet, but the ocean is made of, you know, billions of droplets. So anyway, I really misstated that one as well. So my poetic language is not really working out today. I apologize. Well, I like the idea I wrote in the uh, chat a minute ago about we speak different languages using the same words. The fact that we use similar words confuses us and makes, me, makes us think we're speaking the same language. Yeah. Yeah, and it's interesting. You can get into conversations with people, and I've, I've had this happen, where they really, really deny the idea that there is actually, that the words could have different meanings to different people. And it's really hard to communicate with somebody who believes that because the, anything you say is going to be wrong. But, and you know, it's actually useful to notice that and like accept it and not try to resist it too much. But anyway, uh, does anybody else want any last words? Jolt? <laughs> All right, well, it's been really great talking to you guys. Um, I'm glad we didn't end 11 minutes in and uh, hopefully I'll see you again next weekend. Thanks everyone. Ciao.